Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Halloween Ends from 2022. Written by David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, Paul Brad Logan, and Chris Bernier, and directed by David Gordon Green. As with Halloween Kills, the previous installment, this one has additional writers alongside Green and McBride who don't have a ton of credits on their resume. They were brought in to assist in quote-unquote curating Green and McBride's ideas due to the accelerated production schedules brought on by the success of 2018's Halloween. The films weren't shot back-to-back, though, even though they were released only a year apart. The release of Kills was delayed by COVID, creating the illusion of a very rushed development process. It was still pretty rushed, don't get me wrong. Green and McBride were developing the first draft of both scripts pretty much simultaneously, with Ends getting a completed draft before Kills had even gone into production. As with Kills, the process of casting and production was relatively smooth. The 2018 Halloween was a hit, and what with Kills being delayed a year by the pandemic, there wasn't really much chance to absorb the lessons of that film's critical drubbing and its lowered box office returns, although let's be clear, every installment in this trilogy was profitable. Green said, let's do the second one as an action movie and the third one as a romance to subvert audience expectations, and everyone involved was pretty much on board. And before we dig in further, because I'm going to be upfront and say this film did not connect to me as anything other than a campy absurdity, and I don't think there was anything intentional about the camp involved, I want to say good for them. The David Gordon Green trilogy, especially in its latter two installments, did at least try to strike out on its own and forge a path that didn't strictly hew to the original. Obviously, it contained some winking references to Halloween 78, probably to the point of exasperation at times, but it wasn't just trying to replicate John Carpenter's movie. It took some big swings, and it tried something different, and while I don't think it succeeded even on its own terms, I think a lot of the huge fan backlash against it, particularly against this, its final installment, stemmed not from a hatred of what it failed to do, but that it tried to do anything at all. So let's take a moment, before we discuss this film and all of its problems, to compliment it for at least not just doing a creatively bankrupt 90-minute fight scene between Laurie and Michael. Okay, yes, a solid 90 minutes of Laurie and Michael fighting it out would have been pretty cool too. But creatively bankrupt, you gotta admit. Speaking of Laurie and Michael, Jamie Lee Curtis, excuse me, that's Academy Award-winning actress Jamie Lee Curtis, and James Jude Courtney reprised their respective roles here. By the time the film was released, Curtis was coming off the career high of her participation in the breakout hit Everything Everywhere All at Once, but she actually completed principal photography on that movie before the pandemic even started. Not long before, but within a few months before. Andy Matichek, who also returns as Allison, did have a film come out between Kills and Ends, the war movie Foxhole, but again, the rapid-fire production schedule of the Green Trilogy precluded a lot of work between pictures. Foxhole also stars James LeGrosse of Phantasm II fame. It really is a small world. We also get Will Patton back as Frank, Kyle Richards back as Lindsay, Diva Tyler as Sandra, you may not remember her name, but you'll probably remember what happened to her, and Omar Dorsey back as Sheriff Barker. 
but there are some new characters as well, most prominently and controversially Rohan Campbell as Corey Cunningham. Campbell had previously made a number of appearances in the kids' show Mech X4 and in the recent Hardy Boys series where he played Frank Hardy, but he's still relatively young, only a couple of years older than the character he plays, and so most of his roles are the usual bit and background parts that appear at the beginning of pretty much every actor's resume. You know, student number four, man with ice cream cone, Ralph, that kind of thing. The same can be said of Corey's Tormentors, although Michael Barbieri, who plays Terry, does have some impressive films he played small roles in. He was in Spider-Man Homecoming and The Dark Tower. Destiny Monet, who plays Stacy, has instead been playing in short films and smaller productions, as well as some fan films. She was Blackfire in a fan version of Red Hood and the Outlaws. Joey Harris, who stands out a little from her gang as Margot, she's the sympathetic one who keeps telling the others to knock it off, has never acted before this, although she does have an upcoming role in Lisa Frankenstein. And the single-named Martine, who plays Billy, is actually an up-and-coming musician whose only other roles are his music videos. Since this is a slightly more restrained film than Kills, which isn't hard, there's a lot fewer random victims and a lot more characters. So we have the Allens, played by Candace Rose and Jack William Marshall, respectively. Rose has picked up parts in Stranger Things and She-Hulk Attorney at Law, while Marshall has only just aged into his destiny of playing vaguely zaddy-ish types and doesn't have a lot of credits to his name just yet. Their kid Jeremy, who only gets a single sequence in the film, but man does he make it memorable, is played by Jackson Goldenberg and has the same limited resume of any child actor. Then we get Corey's parents, smothering Mother Joan and blandly supportive stepdad Ronald, played by Joan Barron and Rick Moose. Barron is a character actor who's honed the abrasive persona she displays here into over 130 film and television roles playing obnoxious and idiosyncratic types. Okay, I haven't seen all 136 of her appearances, but she captures a certain type of person so well here that I'm sure she snags a lot of parts based on it. Well, Moose is a character actor who mostly works in commercials, where he can hone his New York guy persona into an art. Why there are so many New York stereotypes in Haddonfield, Illinois, is perhaps an exercise best left to the viewer. That pretty much just leaves us with the supporting players in Allison's life. There's her ex-boyfriend Doug, played by Jesse Boyd, who's been popping up in all sorts of minor roles dating all the way back to Veronica Mars, and, amusingly, who has a small part in a 2016 horror comedy called Halloween about a stoner who's mistaken for a serial killer. There's also her boss, Dr. Mathis, played by Michael O'Leary. O'Leary is a Twin Cities local born in St. Paul who's probably best known for his 500-plus episodes of Guiding Light that kept him busy from 1983 to 2009. It's always so funny the way that IMDb records series as one credit, so you look at his filmography and it's like, oh, he's done a few things here and there, and then you look a little bit closer and realize this guy was doing a TV show almost every single day for 26 years. Soap opera actors honestly do not get the credit they deserve for dealing with that kind of overwhelming production schedule. Allison also gets her own nemesis in the film in the form of Nurse Deb, played by Michelle Dawson. She's an up-and-coming actor who's probably best known before this for the short-lived 2016 series Ben and Betsy, where she plays Betsy. I have to say I really like her choices in this role. It would have been easy to play her as a catty villain, but she instead decides to play Deb as someone who's winning at life and doesn't feel any need to rub it in. 
And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Willie the Kid of WURG 94.9 The Urge, played by Karan Harris and his receptionist, played by Diana Prince. Harris, who's been in Blackish, That White People Shit, and Millennials, seems to be the only person in the movie who knows this is actually a comedy. Well, Diana Prince is Darcy the Mail Girl on The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs, and I don't even think I need to say anything more to this particular audience. But just in case I do, that's a streaming series on Shudder where longtime horror host Joe Bob Briggs presents cult horror flicks while bantering with his long-suffering co-host Darcy. It was that show that first introduced me to both Things and Sledgehammer, so if you hated those episodes, blame him. And with that, let's dive in! We begin with the aforementioned Willie the Kid, playing us in over the usual studio logos. The Blumhouse logo has been updated a little for this movie, as we're brought back to Haddonfield in 2019, one year after Michael's infamous rampage. Children are out trick-or-treating, and if I had a soundboard, this is where I'd put in a loud record scratch sound, because it's the Halloween after Michael killed 47 people before vanishing, still at large, and whereabouts unknown, and we're supposed to believe that people are letting their kids wander around the neighborhood unsupervised? Oh no. Oh hell no. This is absurd. There are a lot of communities here in the United States that do supervised activities for kids on Halloween already, rather than let them go out trick-or-treating simply due to concerns about traffic safety. And these motherfuckers are just, hey, have fun, hope you don't run into the literal boogeyman whose unprecedented rampage tore our community apart only a year ago, and who notoriously chooses to strike on Halloween night? There's no way this would happen. There's no way people would be holding parties, there's no way there would be door-to-door trick-or-treating, and honestly, there's no way a family as ungodly rich as the Allens are shown to be would even be in town on October 31st. They'd up and fly to Puerto Vallarta for the week and do some cheesy tourist Day of the Dead festival. We are already being violently flung from the movie as any notion of believable human interaction, and we're not even two minutes in. But it is what it is, and so Cory bikes over to the Allens to babysit on short notice due to an illness on the part of the regular babysitter. Presumably Andrea looked at the calendar, saw that she was going to be alone in a big old house on Halloween night, and faked a stomach bug before driving as far and as fast as she could out of town. Cory finds Dad playing the half-price horror theme on an upright piano. No, really, it is. It's Takata and Fugue and Mom putting the last touches on her costume, and they have a little conversation about Jeremy's night terrors before they leave. Sweet and nerdy Cory's usually their landscaper, saving money to go to an engineering school, and it's really obvious that he's out of his depth with this obnoxious little brat, even before we see the two of them watching John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes, it only took us 13 installments, but we have finally graduated from the original Thing from Another World to its remake. While Cory goes to the fridge to get some chocolate milk, little Jeremy decides to play a nasty prank on his babysitter, knocking over a lamp and racing out through the front door before slipping back in through the back door while Cory goes to look for him, stealing the knife from the kitchen island to make it look like Michael's in the house, and hiding upstairs. And when Cory goes up looking for him, Jeremy locks him in the attic. It's actually literally unsafe, and it's such peak awful child behavior that you're genuinely rooting for Michael to show up and kill the little brat. But instead, Carrie kicks open the attic door and it smacks hard into Jeremy, sending him toppling over the railing, which 
really shouldn't be possible, as the entire purpose of railings is to prevent exactly that from happening, and this kid is not tall enough to have a center of gravity higher than the banister so that he would go toppling over it, he would just smack into it. But again, this is not a movie that cares a whole lot about respecting consensus reality. Jeremy plummets three stories just as his parents return home, leaving Corey holding a knife and looking down at the Allens and Jeremy's very dead body with a stunned and horrified expression on his face. It does not help that they came home just in time to hear the banging on the door and Corey's shout of, I'm gonna kill you, you little shit! And with that, we jump straight into the title card and opening credits, done this time in the same font as the original Halloween 3. This time the theme is pumpkins exploding out of pumpkins, as each lit jack-o'-lantern contains a rapidly expanding jack-o'-lantern inside it that tears it apart as they loom bigger and bigger on the screen. The final one is a blank, uncarved, expressionless pumpkin that splits open to reveal a bloody, gooey interior, and it's somehow more ominous than any of the ones before it. Up until that point I was kind of meh on the title sequence, but that final pumpkin? That's genuinely creepy. We then get a flashback to all three previous installments of this continuity, narrated by Lori as she writes a book on her experience called Stalkers, Saviors, and Samhain. I think the overwrought prose and trite, simplistic insights on life are meant to be intentional. Lori's not a writer, after all, and the track record of everyday people writing their memoirs is pretty checkered. But she goes on past the end of Halloween Kills to explain that in the four years since Michael killed her daughter and vanished into the night, Haddonfield has become a pretty rough place to live. Michael's old house was demolished, which is presumably why he hasn't shown up since. Kills established pretty clearly that all he wants to do after his rampages is return to his childhood home, and he's got to be feeling pretty unmoored without that landmark in his life. But the murder and suicide rate in the town has gone way up, and everyone blames everyone else for failing to prevent Michael's killing sprees. Surprisingly, though, it's had the reverse effect on Lori. Deciding that she needed to live for something after all of these years of doomsday prepping that accomplished nothing, she bought a house in town with her insurance settlement. Well, I'm presuming it was her insurance settlement, because again, we don't know where Lori gets all of her money from, and also it couldn't have been her insurance settlement because she burned her own house down, which insurance companies generally tend to frown on. So this is just another one of those things that they did not think about and that does not make any sense. In any event, she now spends her time doting on her granddaughter and writing the aforementioned memoirs which appear to be 100% introductions and conclusions, but maybe we're just seeing her rewrite the ending more than a few times. While she's writing, the smoke alarm goes off, bringing us back into the narrative proper as she and Allison run to the oven where the pumpkin pie she's making has burned. Allison gets out Chekhov's fire extinguisher and reassures her that it's no big deal, while Lori bemoans the loss of the traditional Thanksgiving pie, which she's baking four days before Halloween. Strictly speaking, she says it's a Halloween tradition, but we all know that's not true. It's not a Halloween tradition. It is a Thanksgiving tradition. It is what you do with the pumpkin that you scoop out of the jack-o'-lanterns on Halloween. That is the whole point of why you start cooking the pies afterwards, because then you have the empty the jack-o'-lantern and the pie. I've never met anyone who has a traditional Halloween pie, and I don't know where this is coming from, and it feels, it feels like they've never talked to a real human being. I'm sorry. And Lori also tries to cajole her daughter into going to the party Lindsay is throwing at her bar the next night. 
because that's when you hold Halloween parties if you're an entertainment establishment. Three days before Halloween. I'm sorry, I don't mean to harp on this, but almost every scene contains something off-kilter that makes it feel like you're watching well-meaning aliens attempt to simulate an understanding of the human experience, and it's really weird and off-putting. Allison doesn't have a date for the party, though, and she's got a job as a nurse at Haddonfield Memorial that she has to get to, so the conversation ends prematurely. Corey, meanwhile, is biking to his job at the junkyard, and although they completely elide the three years since Jeremy's death with nothing more than a, well, everyone in town hates him now, it's probably worth digging into it a little because it's surprisingly one of the few things that makes sense and it provides a lot of motivation for his character. We're told later on in the movie that the court said he was innocent, which tracks, he probably wouldn't have been charged with murder, more likely manslaughter or reckless homicide, and his defense would have been pretty ironclad since he couldn't see what was on the other side of the door and had no way of knowing that Jeremy was standing in the exact impossible position to go over the railing. His urgency in getting the door open could have been explained by, he was trapped in the attic and there was an unsupervised child in the house, Jeremy was in danger and he had every reason to think there was urgency needed. However, he would have had to hire a lawyer to make that defense, which explains why 21-year-old Corey's plans for college have turned into 24-year-old Corey working in his father's junkyard and still stuck in Haddonfield riding a bicycle. Honestly, I really wish they would have ditched Lori and Allison and spent a lot more time with Corey. He's got the most interesting story out of everyone, and Rohan Campbell really sells that nervous, nerdy energy that feels faintly unnerving, even when he's not actually doing something that should make you uncomfortable. Yes, I'm aware of the irony of saying we should ditch Laurie after two straight installments that I said would work better without Michael. Not every film has the same problems, and not every film has the same solutions. We hear Willie the Kid on the radio expounding conspiracy theories about Michael, which does not seem like a ratings-boosting notion given that something like three-quarters of his listening audience have lost a friend or family member to the killer's rampages, and we get a long, lingering shot of the scrap metal grinder to establish it for later before Corey's stepdad decides to take pity on him and give him one of the junkyard's old motorcycles to help him get to work on time. Although you could absolutely be forgiven for thinking this is just Corey's boss and not his stepdad, because they call each other Ronald and a kid, and Ronald starts by calling Corey out for being late all the time, and their interaction has absolutely no familial tone to it at all. Which, I get that sometimes step-parents do have that kind of slightly distant relationship with their stepchildren, but the movie never clearly establishes that Ronald isn't Corey's biological dad, and so it really feels like this is just the most awkward and distant parent-child relationship ever. Or like it's a nice paternalistic boss doing a solid for one of his employees that he likes who's kind of gotten a raw deal out of his life, which would honestly have been a pretty decent and less unnecessarily complicated take on things. Allison, meanwhile, is driving to work with a loose muffler when she's pulled over by her ex-boyfriend, a Haddonfield cop. He harasses her about their breakup in a way that's just friendly enough that she couldn't possibly report it, and if there's a single believable interaction in this movie that's also absolutely terrifying, it's this. You just know this is the beginning of a pattern of stalking that's going to end with Allison either dead or moving to a different state, and if they just ditched the whole Halloween and Michael Myers angle and made it about this, it would be a scary movie. When he lets her go, she drives over a bridge that leads past a dried-up culvert where some unhoused people are living in an encampment, and maybe I'm just being nitpicky at this point, but I honestly don't think you'd see something like this in Illinois because the weather's too cold to live outdoors for at least part of the year. 
But, I mean, it's not like the weather in the Halloween movies ever actually reflects the lived reality of late October in rural Illinois. Once again, there are scenes where there are full green trees and leaves on the ground. One of the unhoused men goes to pick out cans from the dumpster at the local convenience store, where Cory is getting himself some chocolate milk after work when he runs afoul of four tough teens from the high school marching band, and oh hey, there's that record scratch sound again. Because first off, the phrase, four tough teens from the high school marching band, is a phrase that has never been used in the entirety of human history prior to the release of Halloween Ends in 2022. And second, high school bullies usually bully other high schoolers and not 24-year-old men who can presumably do things like call the cops on them. They're harassing Cory to get him to buy them beer, so literally all he has to do is walk back into the convenience store and say, hey, there's some kids out there that are trying to get your liquor license suspended and they're up shit creek. And third, Cory easily outweighs the head bully by something like 40 pounds of solid muscle and is about six inches taller than he is. Obviously, it turns out that Cory is pretty non-confrontational, but he's not someone you look at and think, oh yeah, I could take this dude in a fight. The whole scene is trying to give John Carpenter's Christine vibes, but it's so hard to believe when it's not part of the high school environment that King and Carpenter worked with in that movie. That said, I do really like Michael Barbieri's performance as Terry here. It's absurd, but he's clearly aware of that, and he's happy to go over the top with his obnoxious bully persona. And I kind of like the parallels to little Jeremy. You can tell that this is who Jeremy would have grown up into, a rich sonat who uses his power and privilege to punish the less fortunate. And it feels kind of appropriate that he's the guy who'd wind up being Cory's tormentor, even if it makes no logical sense. The kids tease and taunt Cory until he squeezes his glass bottle so hard it shatters, and instead of being shocked and unnerved by this display of violent and uncontrollable temper, they decide to mock him further. It's only when Lori shows up that they leave him alone and go inside, adding a few taunts in her direction that seem decidedly unwise directed at a woman whose primary reputation is, oh yes, that's the doomsday prepper who spent 40 years holed up in a wilderness fortress training herself in self-defense. And sure enough, the second they enter the convenience store, Lori pulls a knife and slashes their tires because she's an old woman and she doesn't give a fuck anymore. She then takes Cory to the hospital to see to his mutilated hand, which is surprisingly low on everyone's priority list, given that he's just driven broken glass into it. Because again, realism is constantly flipped the double bird in this movie, and you're just going to have to accept that, even though it keeps insisting it's a very serious movie about very serious topics. Like workplace harassment. When Corey gets to Haddonfield Memorial and Allison winds up as his nurse, he knocks over a surgical stand in reaction to the pain of the anesthetic shot, and Dr. Mathis blames her for it. She and Corey have a conversation about this and about the problems with her car, and while the two actors really do work very hard at establishing believable chemistry, and Campbell has a nerdy vulnerability that meshes very well with Annie Matichek's charming confidence, this isn't a film that can go very long with believable human interactions, and so we cut to Allison, Lori, and Lindsay back at Lori's house, where Lori tells Allison she needs to quit grieving and find some romance in her life with the line, you know, you need to find someone that can let go that makes you want to rip off your shirt and show grief your fucking tits and say, you know what, let's go. That's a real line in this movie. They gave that line to a real actor to say. To an Academy Award-winning real actor. I can't say Curtis doesn't give it her all, but man does that tip this movie over into camp. 
Corey eats dinner with his mother and his boss from the junkyard, who we all suddenly and abruptly realize is actually a stepdad, and he gets a text from Allison asking him to Lindsay's party that he tries to conceal. His mom responds with, Boys who keep secrets don't get custard for dessert. And at this point I'd like to call a five-year moratorium on the budding serial killer has a weird psychosexual relationship with his obsessively controlling mother trope, because I feel like the way this movie just sort of throws it in as background detail tells me that people clearly aren't thinking about it when they use it anymore, and I kind of feel like someone needs to go back to square one and consciously deconstruct the reasons for it to be in a film. Also, they really go hard on the Jewish mother tropes, and mixing that with the mom from Psycho is a pretty cringy combination. This feels like it needed a sensitivity reader. The next day, Corey gets his new motorcycle up and running, and Allison stops by the junkyard to get help fixing her muffler. The two of them share a sweet little moment together as he shows her the new bike, one that's derailed when Terry's car is towed in and the bully turns out to be bullied himself by an abusive dad. Then that scene breaks off so abruptly that it feels like there has to be more to it that was cut for pacing purposes. It practically breaks off in mid-sentence, with Allison saying, I don't really care about the muffler. I came to see you. And then a break to Lori bumping into Officer Frank at the grocery store. It's really clumsy editing, and I'm kind of surprised because that's usually one thing you can't accuse the green movies of. But now we're at the grocery store, and Laurie flirts a little with Frank over his new lease on life post-Sartain. He's taken up guitar, and he's learning Japanese in preparation for a well-earned vacation. The scene feels a little bit aimless, mainly because Frank sounds like he's having the kind of conversation you'd have two years after the events of Halloween Kills and not four, and it's kind of surprising that they're just now catching up with each other like this. But it doesn't matter, because it's mainly there to make Lori feel good about herself so that she can then get berated by a woman in the parking lot and feel bad about herself again. The woman is the sister of Sandra, the older lady who Michael impaled through the throat with a fluorescent light tube in Halloween Kills. Turns out Sandra survived that, but her neck and throat got messed up, leaving her mute and wheelchair bound. The sister blames Lori for Michael's rampage, which is the position of at least two other people in the movie as well, and is so genuinely gross that I can barely even engage with it. Because we know, and Lori knows, and the police know, that the reason Michael got out and went on a killing spree is because his unethical prison psychiatrist broke him out and literally dragged him over to Lori's house. And I get that grief is not always rational, and sometimes people blame the wrong person, but Lori never challenges any of the insults flung in her direction and instead just wilts every time it's brought up, which doesn't feel even remotely authentic to her character or human nature in general. We get defensive about shit, not mopey and meek. And in addition to feeling very victim-blamey, the over-the-top verbal assault falls into this weird, uncanny valley between camp and seriousness, where it's such a stupid notion that you can't possibly believe it, and yet it's too bleak and miserable to find entertaining in a soap opera sort of way. It's such an unnecessary misstep, and it didn't really need to be in the movie at all. That night, Allison and Corey listen to Willie on the urge on their way to the Halloween party, which is loud and raucous and fun right up until it isn't. Corey dresses as a scarecrow, and she and Corey drink and dance and take photos in a photo booth and generally enjoy each other's company. But when Corey takes off his mask to order drinks at the bar, wouldn't you know it, the woman next to him is Jeremy's mom. She hurls over-the-top abuse at him in much the same way the parking lot lady shouted at Lori, albeit with far more justification. This scene suffers a lot by being juxtaposed with the one before it. And he hastily leaves the party, unable to face his own very real and far more believable guilt. 
When Allison follows him, trying to talk him down, he snaps at her that he's not a project for her to fix, and that he's never going to be able to get past his history in Haddonfield. He tells her he doesn't want to see her again and goes storming off into the night. But, in a highly unbelievable coincidence, the four teens from the marching band come upon him at random and harass him some more for what he and Lori did to the car's tires. Margot tries to persuade the others to let it go, but when Cory needles Terry about his abusive dad, the situation escalates rapidly and Terry winds up pushing Cory off the bridge. Which again, feels like a very nice parallel to Cory pushing Jeremy over the railing. A lot of the Cory stuff works very well, it's the Lori and the Allison stuff that doesn't. Cory survives the fall, but that's not immediately evident to the teens up top, and they decide to flee the scene rather than go down and see if he's okay. I really love the acting in this scene, which feels a lot like a super sped-up version of I Know What You Did Last Summer. Joey Harris and Destiny Monet are very believably shocked and horrified by the sudden explosion of violence, while Barbieri and Martine convincingly sell the sullen defiance of people who do not want to admit that what they did was wrong. Allison returns home, upset about the way the date ended, while an unconscious Cory is dragged into the sewers by Michael Myers. Oh, hey, remember him? Yeah, he's in this movie! Michael is about to kill him when the two look into each other's eyes, and either Michael recognizes some kind of buried kindred spirit in him waiting to be unleashed, or some kind of psychic transference infects Cory with Michael's evil. A lot of the later dialogue suggests the second interpretation. I prefer the former, but I'll acknowledge they're both present and they're both valid. Either way, Michael spares him and lets him leave, and he crawls back out of the sewers into the early morning light and is attacked by the unhoused man from earlier, played by Blake Fowler, who claims that he's seen Michael take others and none of them have ever escaped. So Michael's not so much done killing as he is chill and mellow about killing. The old man pulls a knife, and Cory winds up stabbing him to death in self-defense. Cory throws the knife into the woods and heads home, cleaning himself up while his mother stands outside the bathroom, calling out to him in concern. He's clearly shocked and terrified by everything that happened to him over the course of the evening, and he can't help staring at himself in the mirror in an effort to see what killing a man changed about him. Back at the hospital, Allison was beaten out for a promotion by Nurse Deb, who's very clearly sleeping with Dr. Mathis. She heads home, where Lori is continuing to work on the bland platitudes section of her book, and there's a lovely moment where Lori looks out the window and sees Cory standing next to a bush in the exact same stance as Michael. I can't say it makes a ton of sense at this point in the movie, because it's not like Cory got possessed or anything, and there's no real reason for him to be standing there like that, but it's very effective. Turns out Cory's there to apologize to Allison, and the two of them go for a walk together to talk things over. He blurts out, I killed someone, which at first seems like a very unexpected turn for the plot to take, but it turns out he's actually talking about three years ago, and not, you know, earlier that same day. He brings her to the house where Jeremy died, now sealed off and abandoned, and let me just stress again that this is not the way the real estate market works and people do not simply board up their house for three years with their belongings still inside, including a $10,000 upright piano just because a family tragedy occurred there. I can believe they'd sell the place, sure, but they don't even clean up the bloodstains. Corey explains what happened that night, and let me just stress that this is someone Allison has known less than 48 hours when he dumps this massive load of trauma on her, and her response is to double down on their emotional commitment instead of spotting the entire parade of red flags he's giving off. This entire relationship feels like the lesbian speed dating sketch on Saturday Night Live. 
Lori, meanwhile, goes over to introduce herself to Cory's mom, because she can apparently tell that at this rate they'll probably be married by the time the week is out. And of course, Joan is abrasive and rude, and immediately blames Lori for Michael's rampage out of nowhere, because nobody can have a realistic emotional interaction in this goddamn movie! Sorry. It's just... it's a lot to take in. Allison and Corey go to a diner together, where Officer Doug is having a drunken birthday celebration with some other cops, and Corey takes the bold step of getting confrontational with a room full of police officers, one of whom is already serially stalking and harassing Allison. It's a scene that should end with Corey in the back of a police car on some trumped-up charge or other, but instead Doug leaves them alone and Allison trauma bonds even more to her new boyfriend. Corey drops her off back home, seemingly aware that Doug is following them, and leads the abusive cop back to the culvert where Michael's been hiding. What follows is... I mean, I don't want to read too much into any movie, you all know that, but I mean, there's really no other way to put it. It's a gay seduction scene. Corey, who's still learning how to unleash this boundless capacity for violence he's discovered inside himself, gets Michael to help him make his first deliberate killing, and the staging of the sequence, and the positioning of the two killers on either side of Doug, and the emotional tension makes it 100% feel like Corey is having a sexual awakening with an older man and an unwilling third participant in the threesome they're having. Even Corey's exhortation to Michael to GET UP when Doug knocks the slasher down is only one word away from making the subtext text, if you know what I mean. And just in case anyone thinks I am reading too much into this, I know Sam Weinman of the Austerian podcast said pretty much the same thing only a few weeks after it came out, so I'm really just agreeing with a fellow film scholar here. The killing seems to reawaken something in Michael, too, which is an interesting thread I really wanted them to explore a lot more than they did, and afterward Corey goes back to Lori's house and tries to discuss what happened with Allison in an effort to explore the strange new feelings coursing through him. But of course, he's hamstrung by not wanting to admit to killing Allison's ex alongside the man who killed both her parents, so instead they just go upstairs and have sex. Lori gets home just as they reach the stairs and stands outside, watching them head up. Michael in turn watches her, and it feels like the film thinks there's something highly significant about the way both of them are outsiders in the lives of their surrogate children, and both of them share a sort of voyeuristic intensity to their gaze, but I don't think there actually is. I think it's creating parallels where none exist to make itself seem deeper than it is, and if the guy who just called a murder scene a subtextual gay awakening said that, you know it's true. The next day, Deb rudely gossips about Allison's new boyfriend directly to her, and Allison realizes that Deb is sleeping with Dr. Mathis about five scenes later than she should. Seriously, given how bad these two are at hiding their sexual tension, this is the sort of thing that would have been all over the hospital well before the movie began. Meanwhile, Lori is at Lindsay's bar trying to tell her about the bad vibes she's getting from Corey all of a sudden, and Lindsay just goes, Oh, hey, you know who you should talk to about this? That guy playing pool over there. He's the father of the little boy Corey killed. And the guy drops everything and says, Oh, yeah, let me just share everything about the trauma and grief I experienced when my son died, how it took me years to get over hating his killer, and oh, wouldn't you know it, I finally worked up the nerve to forgive him yesterday morning when I saw him walking alongside the road, but when I pulled over to talk to him, he suddenly seemed all dead inside. He had these eyes, you know, the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Anyway, nice chatting with ya. I paraphrase slightly for comedic effect, but I guarantee you, the scene is legitimately that absurd in its abrupt and unmotivated lurch into melodrama. 
This guy has literally no filter about his family, his life, his traumas, anything. And it's just the goofiest thing I think I've ever seen in a motion picture. That night, Dr. Mathis and Deb go back to his expensive and finely appointed house, and Corey takes his next step into darkness by killing Mathis by the side of the pool in retaliation for the way he treated Allison a couple of days ago. It's an effectively tense scene, even though I once again want to bring filmmakers and production designers to Illinois in late October and ask them, does this really seem like swimming pool weather? At least he's out there lighting a fire in his fire pit. That's Midwestern fall behavior. Corey almost slips up and fails to finish off Deb before she can call the cops, but Michael arrives to impale her to the wall Bob-style while Corey watches the master work in a state of excited fascination. Corey also leaves big obvious handprints on the sliding glass door, which you'd think would be foreshadowing something, but 100% is not. Apparently the police in Haddonfield don't even bother looking for clues anymore, they just see this big handprint with clearly defined fingerprints on the door, and they're like, eh. Those are probably Michaels. We're good. Corey then takes Allison up to the roof of WURG and asks her to leave town with him for good, giving both of them a break from the past and a fresh start. So, apparently the dating progression in the Halloween series is first date, tell her you're only going to break her heart and you shouldn't see each other anymore, second date, apologize, take her to the murder house and show her the bloodstains from where you killed that one kid, third date, ask her to move in with you. And Allison is fully into it, even though she looks at the cut on his hand and says, infected, in a way that feels so ludicrously on the nose that I'm surprised the neon sign behind them doesn't actually say, Corey's becoming evil because Michael Myers corrupts everything he touches. When the two of them eventually climb down, they're confronted by DJ Willie, who's all, hey, I know you, you're the psycho babysitter and Laurie Strode's granddaughter. I hate you for absolutely no reason, and I'm going to insult and berate you, because I'm sure there won't be any consequences for my actions. I'm randomly and inexplicably hateful. Bye! It's this kind of subtlety that made Halloween Kills so popular and beloved among fans of the franchise. Allison agrees to run off with Corey, and when he gets home, his mother throws him out of the house for dating a girl because we're now just fully embracing the camp here. Corey spends the night in the murder house, literally sleeping on top of the bloodstain left by Jeremy's body, and when he wakes up, he finds Lori in there with him. She tells him she can sense that he's slipping into a very dark place and she wants to help, but she can't let him leave with her granddaughter. I'm eliding a lot of details of a very goofy conversation that does not sound like anything a real human being would ever actually say, but at this point I feel like we've departed so far from the original concept of a serious look at the lingering effects of trauma that you might as well have Laurie deliver metaphysical diatribes on the nature of evil. The scene ends with Laurie disappearing Batman-style the second Curry looks away, and you just need to imagine Jamie Lee Curtis rapidly tiptoeing out of a room to understand how genuinely dumb this movie is. I'm not even necessarily saying in a pejorative sense, it's just something the film seems to have embraced as a tone. Corey calls Allison up and tells her that Lori threatened to kill him, and after three dates together, naturally Allison is all in on this and fully believes him without even talking to her grandmother. This is what I mean when I say the movie would have been better off without Lori, by the way. If this was a new character, and she'd been allowed to know Corey for a while, instead of having to do a meet-cute, and their relationship had a little bit of time to gel, and she didn't have this tight bond with her grandma, who is also the protagonist of the franchise, that developed over four years of film time and two previous movies, this wouldn't have seemed quite so absurd. 
Corey then goes and beats Michael up and takes his mask, which is just hilarious and nonsensical and guaranteed to piss off fans of the franchise, so naturally I love it. The movie does get exponentially better when it embraces its own stupidity, and I love the way Corey and Michael play off each other. I wanted more of that. I wanted more Corey, I wanted more Michael, I wanted more of this weird gay serial killer romance. <laughs> Armed with the perfect disguise, Corey decides to settle some old scores before he leaves town. He carves the word psycho into the hood of Terry's car, then hangs around just long enough to make sure they see him before heading to the junkyard. As Lori and Allison fight over her decision to move out with a man she's known for literally four days, which ends with Allison blaming Lori for causing the hysteria that killed Karen as though she wasn't the one who joined up with the drunken vigilante posse to confront Michael in his own home, and oh my god, the melodrama in this movie is so rock fucking stupid they honestly can't tell whether these are the most incompetent screenwriters ever or masters of subtle camp on a level John Waters only dreamed of, Corey kills his former bullies one by one. Billy dies first, killed off-screen when he goes to find some towing chains to drag Corey's bike, and Corey then uses the tow truck itself as a weapon to run down Margot. She manages to get over the chain-link fence, but he simply flattens the gate with her still underneath it. She's still alive, and Terry goes to get help while Stacy tries to extricate her, and Ronald gives the teen a shotgun to defend himself. This turns out to be a mistake when Terry shoots Ronald by accident. Corey then beats Stacy to death with a pipe wrench, knocks Terry out with his own weapon, and then spot welds his face into a lump of carbon, then stomps on Margot's head before driving away to kill his own mom. Last but not least, he goes to the radio station and murders Willie and his receptionist. Prince's death scene was cut, unfortunately, but Willie gets a very gnarly kill that includes having his tongue snipped off with a pair of sharp scissors. It lands on the record, because apparently Willie is one of those hipsters that only plays vinyl, causing it to skip and stutter in a very creepy way. Incidentally, it occurs to me he doesn't go after the Allens, even though they've been pretty predominant characters in the movie, and even though it makes sense at least for him to go after Mrs. Allen, who verbally attacked him at the party. I don't know, maybe there's some deleted scenes or something, but it just feels like they sort of drop out of the movie a little prematurely. Allison goes to the diner to wait for Corey, who promised to meet her there. Lori calls her, leaving an apologetic voicemail, then goes upstairs and gets out her gun. She calls the cops, reporting her own suicide, and as we see Corey waiting just outside the room dressed as Michael, a single gunshot goes off. He goes inside, only to find her waiting with her pistol and a detonated jack-o'-lantern, and she says, Did you really think I'd kill myself? Before shooting him twice in the shoulder, sending him crashing through the railing onto the floor below. Which, I have questions. First, did she know this was Corey disguised as Michael, and not Michael? Because the way that she decides to fake him out doesn't make a lot of sense if she thinks that this is actually Michael. Second, is the proper method for dealing with a home invasion really fake your own suicide to draw them out, then shoot them? Third, is it really necessary to take your deception all the way up to the level of telephone the actual police and loudly announce to them that you intend to kill yourself instead of maybe saying, there's somebody in my house? Fourth, do the police really respond to these calls by just letting you hang up and not calling back? Fifth, if the woman that you're there to kill shoots herself, which a Corey apparently thought she did, why not just be all, cool, that worked out better than I thought, and leave? 
6th, and this one is more metatextual, isn't this way too serious a topic to turn into a momentary fake-out gag in the third act of your otherwise absurdly campy slasher movie? Basically, I feel like someone should have looked at this and said, in essence, what the fuck, guys? Laurie goes down to confront Cory, who has unfortunately not learned Michael's trick for seeming invulnerability, and when he realizes there's no way to kill Laurie and get away with it before Allison comes in, she didn't wait for him at the diner after all, and her arrival is given away by the distinctive rattling of her muffler because when she said a few days ago that she didn't really come to the junkyard for car repairs, she apparently decided to prove it by refusing them when offered. He decides instead to poison Allison's relationship with her grandmother by stabbing himself in the neck. Lori pulls the knife out, despite presumably having a lot of first aid training over those 40 years of doomsday prepping, and Allison walks in to find the older woman standing over Corey's lifeless body with a bloody knife. It's... it's just peak stupid. Allison storms back out, and Lori sags down to the floor in despair, and then the filmmakers collectively smack their foreheads and shout, Oh, right, shit! This was supposed to be the climactic confrontation between Laurie and Michael that fans have been waiting 44 years for. Oh, um, yeah, Michael was just outside the whole time looking for his mask. Yeah, that's it. And obviously this is the issue that infuriated Halloween fans so badly, the fact that Michael's such a peripheral character in the conclusion to his own story. But that's not the problem. Or at least, that's not the only problem. The problem is that the third act isn't constructed to lead to his reappearance. So it feels like the movie we're actually watching about Laurie and Allison and Corey gets put on pause because they've realized that they're just about out of time and Michael's story needs to get wrapped up. Michael's not just peripheral, he's an actual afterthought. And although the forthcoming sequence is pretty suspenseful, it doesn't feel like the end of Halloween Ends. It feels like a short film they tacked on in response to audience complaints. So yes, Michael comes back in looking for his mask, which is at least on brand given the keep-away games we got in Kills, and Corey miraculously recovers from his stab wound just in time for Michael to murder him because, um, legacies? Seriously, I don't know what the intent was here. Maybe Michael decided he wasn't a worthy successor because he couldn't do the get-back-up-and-keep-slashing trick. Maybe he was just really mad about having his mask stolen. Who knows? The point is, it's now Michael's fault that Corey is dead and not his own, and that's important, I guess, because this is Michael's story, even though it 100% isn't. Having recovered his true face, which let's all remember he found 40-odd years ago in a hardware store and wore all of once prior to 2018, he begins hunting Lori. Allison doesn't know any of this. She's driving away from the house, enraged, when she sees the radio station on fire and gets a call from Frank asking where Lori is. And given that Lori called from her trackable cell phone and gave the cops her exact address just a few minutes earlier, I think this confirms everything you ever suspected about the state of policing in Haddonfield. And she turns around and heads back. Lori, meanwhile, ambushes Michael from the pantry and hits him with a fire extinguisher, initiating a tense battle between the two of them where Lori suddenly develops the same super strength and impervious to pain that Michael has. He smashes her head into cabinets, fridges, dish racks. He shoves her hand into a garbage disposal. He stabs her in the head with a knitting needle. Get it? Get it? And she still manages to get the upper hand and drive a knife clean through his palm and several inches into the kitchen island to pin him in place. I want this to be the new TikTok trend, by the way. People trying to put a knife straight through a chicken breast or a pork chop or something and into a kitchen island so hard it embeds itself into the surface. 
With Michael pinned down, Lori finally gains the upper hand for good, and she first stabs him in the chest and then takes another knife from the drawer to impale his other hand in place before toppling the fridge onto his legs. Then she drives a third knife into his side just below the armpit, and takes off his mask to reveal an elderly man with severe burn scars. I thought maybe you were the boogeyman, she says, before adding, no, you're just a man who's about to stop breathing. Which sounds more like something you'd hear the villains say in one of the C-list Bond ripoffs, like the third or fourth direct-to-video sequel in the X franchise, but at this point it's hard to even get annoyed by this movie anymore. I'm just sort of numb. She then slits his throat, but of course this is Michael Myers, so simply having his carotid artery opened isn't going to put him down for any length of time. He instead pulls his hand straight through the knife blade. Fun fact, Michael Myers has no bones, and this flesh is the approximate consistency of deli meat, and he begins strangling her. Laurie shouts, Do it! Because apparently the filmmakers don't know or don't care about how hard it is to speak with your airway being constricted, but just then Allison comes in and breaks Michael's arm. The two of them then slash the killer's wrists, and the police finally arrive to find a permanently dead Michael. But Allison decides that's not enough. After a brief debate among the police officers, they decide to tie Michael to the roof of Lori's car and drive him to the junkyard, with a full police escort, no less, leading everyone in town to follow along to see what all the fuss is about, where they ceremoniously crowd-surf Michael into the scrap metal grinder in front of the entire populace of Haddonfield, so Lori can watch his body get shredded in a fountain of gore. And man, it's a good thing the owner died, because you have to know that is never coming out of those gears. And again, not to harp on this, but this scene is camp. It's the campiest of camp, and it's all the campier because it doesn't know it's camp. David Gordon Green really sincerely believes that when the cops are saying, this isn't how we do things in Haddonfield, and Sheriff Barker pulls up like the riders of Rohan and driving at Helm's Deep and says, it is tonight, that we're all cheering instead of staring in mute incomprehension at the sheer absurdity of the scene in front of us. He really thinks that this is a dramatic conclusion to the saga of Michael Myers, and not a sequence of hilarious stupidity that demands audiences believe that everyone in town just drops everything on Halloween night and drives in one huge procession to the town's junkyard like they're holding the world's weirdest funeral. And I have to admit, I kind of loved this moment, because it's the only bit in the whole movie where I feel like the film is fully diving into its own aesthetic. The only thing that would have improved it is if they spontaneously broke into some sort of choral hymn to commemorate the occasion. I said Amazing Grace. My wife said the Whoville song from The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Her other partner said Can You Hear the People Singing from Les Mis. I feel like these are all correct answers. Now, I will say that maybe I'm wrong here, and maybe David Gordon Green really is the sneakiest of comedians who fully did understand what he was making and wanted it to feel this way. Maybe this is the most subversive of camp classics, a genuine attempt at deadpan comedy that's flying so far under the radar that even the biggest fans of this style of humor can't be sure they're seeing something intentional. But it doesn't feel like it. This feels like seriousness that failed, not comedy that succeeded, and I do think that's one of the glories of horror as a genre. 
because both horror and humor are about the release of emotional tension, and sometimes failing at the former means you succeed at the latter. In any event, Lori finishes her book, apparently confessing to third-degree murder and desecrating a corpse in the process. Allison says, oh yes, I see now, Cory really was awful, because we're in the last five minutes and they want to wrap everything up in a neat little bow. She drives off to start her new life with all her relationships intact, and Frank delivers some groceries to Lori to potentially begin a new romance. And the last shots, which I think do kind of work despite it all, are of empty rooms, empty buildings, empty spaces. Empty because this time Michael isn't there for all the right reasons. And I mean, I'm not foolish enough to think this is the real end to the Halloween series. This is the end of Green's trilogy, sure, and probably the last film we'll see with Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. It's also the last Blumhouse Halloween film, at least that's what Jason Blum is saying now, and whoever winds up picking things up will start off with a clean slate and ignore these movies the same way they ignored the films before it. And maybe that's what this installment needs. Maybe it'll get reappraised someday once it no longer carries the weight of being the climax to the entire Michael Myers saga, and people will be able to see it as a campy catastrophe instead of just a wasted opportunity for a grand finale to Laurie's story. But will I hang on to this movie? No. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that this is retroactively making me get rid of Halloween 18 and Halloween Kills, because there's no way this unifies those two movies into a thematic trilogy that connects up the whole series in one big story. This isn't thesis-antithesis-synthesis, this is thesis-digression-unrelated-story entirely, and I can't really say I would want to go back to any of it. I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I covered it. This tops the Friday the 13th series as the single longest franchise I've ever discussed of the podcast, and I'm very proud of that achievement, even though, as my son said, it's gotta feel like having too much chocolate, right? <laughs> He's right. I don't want to watch this again. And if I ever do change my mind and want to reappraise it as a work of camp, I'll just catch it streaming somewhere. And if you want to talk about campy horror... Darcy the Mail Girl, or about anything else that came up on this podcast. You can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror. I think it's time we went back to the documentary well instead of just doing another horror movie, and I've got the perfect documentary to pick. It's a 1982 film about the missed opportunity M&M's had to gain the perfect product placement in the massive summer blockbuster E.T., and the way their loss was the Reese's Candy Company's gain. A contemporary perspective on advertising in movies, it's... Wait. I'm being reliably informed that, in fact, this isn't the topic of the 1982 movie, Pieces. I guess it's not exactly what you think it is after all, but it is what we're going to cover next time, so I'll see you then.